Well, what a beautiful psalm, isn't that? Hello, everyone. I'm Michael, one of the ministry apprentices here. I do have a little bit of a throat thing going on. Um, I want to just caveat what Ben said earlier. Um, this is actually not my top favorite psalm. <laughs> um, I partly picked the psalm. It is one of my favorites. Um, I partly picked the psalm because I thought it's so short, right? It must be easy. It must be easy to preach on. Um, how wrong I was. <laughs> so, I need God's help, and we all need God's help if we're going to hear from Him today. So, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have given us this little beautiful psalm. And Lord, we do pray that you open our minds and open our hearts, soften our hearts so that, Lord, if the Word challenges us, if the Word shows us how you want us to live, that, Lord, uh, we'd be willing and ready to shape our lives according to your word. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I wonder, if I say the word security, what picture comes into your mind? What's the mental picture you have of a secure life? Um, I'm an Asian, uh, so I'm going to give you, well, I can't speak for all Asians, but let me give you the picture that I grew up with in my Asian upbringing of what a secure life is. Uh, my parents were first-generation first immigrants to New Zealand, and so they kept it pretty simple. They gave me, passed me down these two things as what a secure life is. So no bells and whistles, just this. Own a house and have a family with more than one children. Um, that's because I'm an only child, so they were like, don't be like, don't be like us. <laughs> have more than one. And that's kind of the picture. It's quite simple, right? Family and house. That's all my parents really wanted for me growing up. And I don't know about you and what kind of sort of upbringing you had and what kind of picture of security you've had um, even now. And I wonder, though, whether the house and family theme is a bit of a common theme among us. Um, so whatever kind of background we have, that's kind of a similar theme, don't we have? Um, as we look at the psalm, what we're going to find is that this psalm talks about a house, and it talks about a family, and it talks about security. So, what does the psalm have to tell us about security? Um, I want to make observation on two things today. So, first, we're going to look at where security comes from, and second, we're going to look at what truly security is. So, first, where does security comes from? So, the first thing that this psalm teaches us is that security comes from God. He's the one who's holding everything together, right? He's the one who makes things secure. And we see that in verse 1. So let's read it. Verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. So what we're told here in the very first verse is that without God's work of building the house and securing the city, all our work trying to build it and secure it, all of that's in vain. All of that's empty and fruitless. What this means is that if you see any house that's secure, that's standing at the moment, God's the one who made, made it stand. God's the one who built it. If you see any city, like Auckland, that's pretty secure, you'd say. Why is that? It's because God is keeping it safe. God is guarding the city. You see, God is a worker, See, he's not just someone who's sitting up there. He's like, I've created the world, and I'm just going to leave you to it. 
See, God is at work. And sometimes we kind of think, yeah, God is at work when miracles happen, supernatural things like, you know, dividing the Red Sea, that's God at work. But actually, you realize God is at work in the simple things of life, in the ordinary things. See, often we, we like to think that God created, say, natural order, the like, laws of physics, and he's kind of like left it going as, as though he left it on a clockwork, just ticking, ticking, ticking. But actually what the Bible teaches us is that even natural order itself is, is uphold, upheld by God. He's the one who's sustaining it. He's the one who's guarding it. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the one who's upholding the universe by the word of his power. So what that means is that if Jesus metaphorically took his hand away, what that means is even things like gravity will just disappear, right? The laws of physics, the natural order will just fall apart. Imagine trying to build a house without gravity. Not only is God holding these physical natural laws and natural order in place, he's also the one holding our lives in place, right? We know that the Bible also tells us that God is the one who gives us life. God is the one who gives us breath. So every breath we take is from God. He's the one who holds our very existence together. So, and also, he's the one who gives us our skills, right? He's the one who gives us and equips us with the abilities to be able to do our work, our intelligence, our craft. So yes, even though we're the ones who have to work, we have to build a city, we have to be busy maintaining things, we're keeping everything together, but actually it's ultimately God who's keeping everything together. It's ultimately God who's building and working. And without Him, all our work is vain. Now in verse 3 of the psalm, the psalm pivots to talk about children. Now when it comes to procreation, um, I'm sure you realize that some effort on the parent's part is required, but it's it's ultimately God who gives children, right? We believe deep down that every life conceived in the womb is a gift of God. And that's why we heard Jono and Livy's story a couple weeks ago and how strongly they believe that. We believe that every child is a gift from God. But not only does the psalm say that they're a gift from God. Notice this, they also say, that the, the children also provide security. They provide defense against the enemies. See, verse 4 says that children are like arrows in a quiver. See? Arrows in a quiver they can draw on. I know when children are young, maybe they feel more like arrows in the liver rather than <laughs> arrows in the quiver. But surely when they get older and they grow up, they do provide help, right? They provide support and defense and security for the family. And... What that means is that if, if you're growing up here, which I hope most of us are, um, how, how are we going caring for our families? How are we going for caring for our parents? Are we like arrows in the quiver that our parents can rely upon? Sometimes I think about this and I realize that this is something I really need to work on because um, my parents are still quite young. They're quite mobile. They're very capable and healthy. They don't really need my help. They don't ask for my help a lot. But what it means to honor my parents is that I'm not just uh, jumping to help them when they ask it. It's, it's me taking the initiative to serve them, right? It's me seeking the opportunities to serve and honor them. So how can we be doing that more? How can we be arrows in the quiver 
for our parents, for our families. See, this psalm is telling us that God is the one who works. He's the one who keeps our lives secure, our houses and our families. If that is true, then it means that we don't have to live so anxiously. We don't have to work so anxiously. I'm not sure if you noticed, but when we read that psalm, it's so short, um, did you notice that the whole psalm is written in the third-person perspective? There's only one exception, and that's in verse 2. See, in verse 2, it changes to the second person, and it starts to address you. See, this is where I think, verse 2 is where I think the point of contact that this psalm has with our lives. Let's read it. In vain you get up early, stay up late, working hard to have enough food. Yes, he gives sleep to the one he loves. Isn't that beautiful? Now, that's not an excuse for us to be lazy, just kick back, relax, as though God will just drop food at our doorstep like Uber Eats. That's not what it's saying, right? We still have a responsibility to work. Proverbs tell us is no, it's, to be lazy is to be a fool. It does not please God if we do not work hard. Hard work actually pleases God. So what is this saying? This is not saying that we shouldn't work hard. This is saying we shouldn't work anxiously. This is saying that we can't work as though we can control it all by ourselves. See, this is why God invented sleep, you see. Did you know that God himself, he never sleeps? He doesn't need to sleep. In Psalm 121 verse 4, it says this, The protector of Israel does not slumber or sleep. See, God doesn't need sleep. Why why do we need to sleep? Why did he create us to need to sleep? So I'm told that the average human lifespan is 72 years, and we roughly spend about a third of that time sleeping. Well, that means that 24 years, roughly speaking, if you live around about 72 years of age, 24 years of your life is spent sleeping. That's a lot of unproductive time, right? Can you just imagine like, what we could accomplish as a human species if we didn't need to sleep? Just work and work and work? Well, God can accomplish more when we do sleep. That's what the psalm is saying. It's God who is the worker. God is the one who's keeping it, holding it all together. See, sleep is not a bug. It's not a flaw in our design. It's a feature. It's a perk of being human. So sleep has taught us and is supposed to teach us that we are not God and we don't have to be God. There is a God, and so that means we can work a little while and then we can stop and take a break for a little while before we have to work again. We don't have to keep working nonstop, working anxiously, because God is the one who's holding everything together. He's the one who holds our lives secure. So sleep is meant to teach us how to trust God. And so you realize that every night you get to grow your faith. Every night you get to practice trust in God. You get to exercise faith by saying to God, God, I am so glad. I'm so glad I can clock out because you're the one holding the fort. You never clock out. So is that that how you go to sleep? Or do you go to sleep anxiously, thinking about tomorrow, worrying about the next day and the next week and the next year? I know that I need to learn this lesson of learning to trust God more and more as I go to sleep. So why not practice that tonight? So the first lesson that we see 
is that this psalm is telling us that God is the one holding the fort. God is the one who's making our lives secure, our houses, our family. So we should learn to trust Him. But here's a problem. You might be here and you're thinking, but my life is so insecure. My, I, I, I still can't afford a house. I still, I'm still struggling financially. I still, I'm still unemployed. And I still can't have children. Is that you? Do you? Are you like, I want to trust God, but I struggle when I feel like He's withholding these good things from me. What do you do? What do you do, friends, when you feel like God is withholding the good things from you? Well, to answer that question, we have to turn to the next lesson that the psalm has for us, and that's the question of what is truly security? What is the security that truly God is offering us? Well, we began earlier by assuming that the psalm is talking about us. It's talking about our house, our family, right? But what if it's not talking about that? What if it's not talking about us? What if it's not about us? That's preposterous, you say. How could the Bible not be talking about us? Well, what if, in verse 1, let's look at it again, what if the security of the house being mentioned is not my house or your house? What if it's God's house? What if the city being mentioned is not just any random city like Auckland, but what if it's the city of God, Jerusalem? And what if the sons mentioned in verse 3, it's not just anybody's sons, but it's the sons of God? Or it's the sons of David, the, the kings and the line of David who are called God's sons because they ruled on God's behalf, you see. What makes me think that? What makes me interpret this psalm this way? Well, I see two clues, and they're both in the superscription. You see, that's in the Bible, that's in the original text, and it says this, a psalm, a song of ascents of Solomon. What this tells us is that this psalm is one of those songs that the Jews sang when they were making their pilgrimage to the temple. So annually, they make three pilgrimages to the temple for the festivals, and whenever they made their, uh, when they were on their way to the temple to worship, they were singing these songs. So every time they sung this Psalm 127, the temple would have been front and center in their minds. But also, secondly, we realize that this psalm is attributed to Solomon. And there's only one other psalm that's attributed to Solomon, you know. So it's quite rare to have a psalm by Solomon. And Solomon, we understand, is the king of Israel after David. He is David's son. And he could rightly be called a son of God, because he's a king. And he's the one who also built the temple. See, these strands kind of, they make me, they persuade me to think that the real focus of the psalm is not about us, our house, our family. The real focus of the psalm is the security of God's house and God's sons. See, in some ways, this is how Israel looked at life. When they looked at life, when they were thinking of what gives them true security in life, they looked to these two things. They looked to God's house, the temple, because it reminded them that God is with them. God is present with them like no other nation can experience. They were the only nation in the world that could say, God is with us. And the same point, they could also look at uh, the Davidic kings that they have, like, like Solomon, and they could say, because we have the king, we are secure, because God has made a covenant with David to preserve David's line. His dynasty is the most secure dynasty. 
So you see, Israel looked to these two things, no matter how hard life got. They were like, as long as the temple is standing, as long as there's a king on the throne of Israel, life's going to be okay. We are secure. That's their security. What about us? Well, first of all, let's realize that even though they had these two things and they were great, but they were both deeply flawed still. Both the kings of Israel and the temple were flawed. We kind of know already that the kings, they weren't that great. Um, They just progressively got more and more worse, right? Through uh, more and more sinful and more and more corrupt. But also we realize the temple itself was flawed. The temple itself, as, as good as it is, as much as it symbolized God's presence with them, right? That God is with them. It also, the temple kept Israel from God. There's a sense that the temple symbolized God's distance from them. Because you see, even though they, that God dwelled among them, they could never access God. Because nobody could access the Holy of Holies. Everyone was kept out. And only the high priest ever got to enter the Holy of Holies once a year, and he might even die because he's sinful and had to get dragged out. So there's a sense in which the temple symbolized that they're so close to God, yet so far. So we see both the temple and David's sons were flawed. They were like prototypes pointing to something else. And because we're all good Christians, we know where they're pointing to. They're pointing to Jesus, right? We've learned in the uh, book of Matthew that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah who has come to fulfill everything about Israel. So everything converges in Jesus. Everything finds their fulfillment in Jesus. He is the Son of God par excellence. He is the true Son of God, better than any other king that ever ruled Israel. And he is also the one who is greater than the temple. He's the true temple because he is the Emmanuel, the one who brings God's presence with us. See, unlike the other kings of Israel, Jesus obeyed the Father perfectly to the point of death. And he established God's everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be destroyed. And unlike the physical temples, he actually dealt with our sin and it brought us into the very presence of God, into that holy of holies. So we can say we are right beside the throne of God right now. That's where we are. See, Jesus, he is the true son of God and he's the true house of God. So the psalm is talking about him. But also... What's true about Jesus is true of us, right? So in Galatians chapter 3, this is what we read. Through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Yes. If you believe in Jesus, you are adopted into God's family as sons. That's right. All the women here, you are sons. So you can be a male son or you can be a female son, but you are all sons. Only God, God only has sons. And the reason why Paul says that, the reason why he doesn't say, are oh, you all sons and daughters in God's family, is because if he said we're all sons and daughters, he started to introduce two tears in God's family, right? Because in the ancient world, sons were worth so much more than daughters. And it's the sons who got the inheritance. The daughters got nothing. You don't want to be a daughter. You want to be a son. So what Paul is telling us is that when we are adopted into God's family, we stand in the position of Jesus. We are sons. We get the inheritance. You're not second tier. And in 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul states this. Not only are we sons, he says that we are the temple. Let's read. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you, whom you have from God? See, the context here is Paul is trying to tell the Corinthians why sexual sin is so wrong, as though they needed to be convinced of that. But the way he argues is this. He says, don't you realize that you have the Holy Spirit within you? you? The God lives in you. You're like a temple. You're like the house of God. So don't go and defile God's house. Don't go and defile God's temple. Because you are the temple of God. So what this means is, friends, if your faith is in Jesus, then you are a child of God and God's Spirit dwells within you. No matter what else can be said of you, these two truths, they define who you are. These are your foundational core identity markers. You are a child of God and God's Spirit dwells within you. If you're a child of God, it means you are dearly loved by God. It means that you, you can never be separated from God's love. Not even by your own sin, because Jesus has dealt with that. If God's Spirit dwells within you, it means that you're never alone. You realize that? You are always with God. He's your constant companion. The Holy Spirit is closer to us than our dearest friend or our, even our spouse. He's the one who will never leave us nor forsake us. See, when we, uh, when we get married, we say our marriage vows, and our marriage vows says, till death do us apart, which tells us the reality that death ends everything. Death ends every relationship in this world, right? But there's one relationship that it does, death cannot undo. There's one bond, and that's the bond we have with God by His Spirit. Death cannot touch that. And so what this means is that if you are a child of God and God's Spirit dwells within you, you are eternally secure. You have true security. Now, what's true of Jesus is true of us, and what's true of us individually is true of us collectively, corporately, together as the church. So let's read in Ephesians 2 what Paul says here. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the prophets, of, of, of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole be building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. So what Paul says is, first he tells us that we are the church, we are God's household, we're God's family. We're going to learn more about that as we get into the book of 1 Timothy next week. But also, he tells us that the church is a temple. And what's interesting is that the Holy Spirit's building this temple, right? The Holy, Holy Spirit is like the ultimate temple builder. And what he's doing is he's taking each and every one of us, each and every, one, each and every person who comes to trust in Jesus, and we're like, we're like these little bricks that the Holy Spirit takes, and he lays one on top of the other until we all put together become the temple of God. We are the temple of God together. God dwells with us by His Spirit. And this temple we see in Revelation becomes, encompasses all heaven and earth. 
and the new heaven and earth, God's presence will fill all in all. So the church is God's house and God's household. I'm not sure if you've realized, but we've actually come full circle. I earlier said that the psalm is not about us, but in the roundabout way, it's actually about us, right? It's not about us, it's about God's house and God's sons. Who's God's house and God's sons? Well, they converge in Jesus. That's the fulfillment of God's house and God's sons. And if we are in Jesus, we also become God's sons, God's house. We are God's house and we are God's household. True security is to be found in Jesus. True security is to be part of God's house, part of God's household. Now, what does that mean for our lives? Let me draw out two implications and we'll be done. First, if you are secure in Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, this means that you don't have to be anxious about anything. You can trust God even if it feels like he's withholding some good things from you. Because if you're in Jesus, what that means is you are finally, truly home. You're home. Do you realize that the reason we we long for security, all of us, we pursue security in life, the reason we're so anxious to sort of grab hold of anything we can to fill our lives is because ultimately we're like the prodigal son We've left our father, and we've left our home. We're away from home. We're far from home. We're searching for what only home can provide us. See, that's this natural state of every human being. All of us, we're, because we're born outside the Garden of Eden, because Adam and Eve sinned, and so all of us have been born outside God's presence, outside the home that we belong in, we know that deep down we're far from home. We are all aching to go home. And what Jesus has done, he's he's brought us back home. He's brought us back into the arms of the Father. He's brought us back so now we're home, we're secure, we know we're loved. We don't need to be anxious. We know we'll be provided for. But also now that we're home, we've got to be careful, right? Because we don't want to turn into the older brother. Do you remember the older brother in that parable? He despised his father because his father wouldn't give him a goat. Because his father held back a goat from him. He was a son who lived at home, but he realized, yeah, he, he was just as lost as his younger brother was. He was never really home. Because he didn't really believe that his father loved him. He didn't really believe that all that the father has, all the things that are in his household belong to him. Now, I don't know where you're at today. Whether you come here, you're, you're thinking, God has withheld things from me. Or you're, you're clinging on to some kind of security. Maybe you're even someone here that's seen the you know, beautiful children that we have as a church family, like Leon, and you're like, I'm still infertile. I'm still struggling with infertility. Now, that's so hard. I can only imagine how dark and lonely that must feel for you right now. 
But do you realize that if you trust Jesus, if you trust God and he's your father, do you realize that you know that he loves you? You know that he's not withholding these good things from you because he's wanting to torture you. No. You know that even though he allows pain, but he's using the pain to work together for our good. You know that and you can trust that because he's a good father. Now, question, when would a good father ever withhold food from his children? Now, the answer is right before mealtime, you see. That's when it's a blessing to go hungry. That's when it's a blessing to fast. It's, it's good to keep ourselves a little bit hungry so that we're eager for the meal, so that we're eager for dinner. And that's the reality of our lives, you see. See, the life we here live on earth is so short in comparison to eternity. When you put it together, when you put our life here and eternity together, we live on the brink of eternity. We are just around the corner from the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's where all our pain, all our sorrows will be, all our tears will be wiped away and we will be given joy everlasting. Friends, that's the reality of your lives. If you're a child of God and the Spirit dwells in you, you are home. And dinner is just around the corner, so hang on, hang in there. It might be hard. This life may be hard, but it's going to get so much better. Now, the second and final implication is this. If it's really true that the house God is building is, is us, the church, <coughs> we're the temple, then we need to reconsider what are we building. See, sometimes I think we're like children building sandcastles on the beach. We don't quite have enough the skill to be able to build the sandcastle ourselves, so we're like, Dad, help us. Um, so dad comes along and he like helps us to build our sandcastle and when he does, it's going well because it's kind of all holding together. But when he doesn't, the sandcastle falls apart, right? And we get upset. But you know, we shouldn't get upset over a sandcastle. You can't live inside a sandcastle. It's not secure. But you can live in the beach house that dad is building. That's the house that will never wash away by the waves. That's the house that is secure. So the question, friends, is how much time and energy am I personally investing into these sandcastles? How much am I giving to help Dad with this beach house? See, before I joined the apprenticeship, some of you might know this, I worked for a Christian real estate company that was master planning a city in south of Auckland. And it was a great place to work, not, not because of the project or anything. It was a great place to work because it was a faith-driven company. Uh, we were seeking to glorify God as property developers, because, you know, property developers are typically very corrupt. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're trying to be different to the world. We're trying to fight back against the culture um, and do it differently. We were thinking, how can we be salt and light? How can we um, build a community that's based on Christian values? How can we live as Christians and influence the world? And it was a good place to work. But you know, something I realized towards the end of my time there is that as good as this is, as good as the city that we're building might turn out, it's not New Jerusalem. This city will not last. It's still a sandcastle. This city will not last into eternity. There's only one thing that lasts into eternity, friends. 
Yes, there's many good things that we can do with our lives. There are many things that we can please God and glorify God and serve God in, but there's only one endeavor in this life that will last into eternity. There's only one building project that's eternally secure. And that's the work of building up God's house. It's the work of seeing sinners return to the Father. It's the work of serving one another, encouraging each other in the faith until we all attain to the fullness of maturity in Christ. This is the house that God is building. And he's invited us, all of us, into this work, whether it's full-time or whether it's just whatever time and energy we can give of ourselves. He's invited us to work with him. So let's give ourselves wholeheartedly to this work because this is the house that the Lord will build and it will never be in vain. Let's pray. (sighs) Heavenly Father, Heaven is your throne, earth is your footstool. There is no building that can contain you, yet you are pleased to dwell with us. You are pleased to make your presence known to us. You are pleased to send your son to us so that we can return home, so that we can be yours again. Thank you for the great love that you had sending your son, and thank you for all that you have accomplished in him. His finished work on the cross give us security. And we trust in the continual work that you're doing in the Spirit to build this temple, build this house, and build us. And we pray, help us, Lord, to get in the action. Help us, Lord, to labor for your sake, for your kingdom. With every strength, every energy we can, you give us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.